Rory Stain, I'm looking forward to having a fireside chat with you in the Berg at what we call BNC3. It's our third Biz News Conference, and it's a, it's a different format. Uh, we're going to be talking about you. The topic of the talk is uh, your time as Madiba's bodyguard. And I'm looking even more forward to it than you are because um, it's just got such a wonderful reputation, great location, and I'm very happy to tell have my story. Have you been story. there before? I have. Yeah. I've, you know, uh, we stayed there for about three nights years ago, played a bit of golf there. It's just a great setting, isn't it? I mean, anywhere in the Berg's a great setting, right? Drakensberg Sports Resort's golf course has now been upgraded to the 26th best in South Africa. And given how many golf wow. courses we've got here, yeah, that's, that's a very high rating. Absolutely. I mean, even top 100 is going to be a proper track. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are you going to be telling us? Well, uh, essentially, you know, people love to hear the stories about uh, the privilege that I had to serve Madiba for the five years that he was our president. You know, how that came about, meeting him for the first time, especially given the fact that not only was I a white cop, but I also came from a, a security branch background. So Nelson Mandela and Rory Stain should really have been mortal enemies. And yet he accepted me, and not only did he accept me, he rebuffed an attempt, I guess you would call it, because when, this, when the intelligence services discovered that this young team leader who is assigned to the president you know, has the background that I had, they went to him and said, listen, you know, you need to get rid of this guy. And that would have been the simplest thing for him to say, yeah, okay. There would have been a hundred other guys in the, in the queue equally as qualified as I was, Alec. And he said, no. He said, you leave that boy there. He's, um, he's done a good job and he's proved himself. And he later said to me that in any case, we are not looking for people who are carrying out instructions in the old days, in the old system and everything that this, the security police were known for. He said, we want the people that were giving those instructions. It was a, a, a real light bulb moment for me, Alec, because what it said was that I was employed to do a job, and that job demanded loyalty to my president, to the head of state. But long before I was called on to be loyal to him, he was loyal to me. He didn't have to do that. As I said, he could have just said, yeah, okay. It's, it's incredible. I was actually thinking about our conversation this morning and remembering yes. I, I met him twice. And wow. in both times, he said, it's an honor and a privilege to meet you. I'm sure he did that with everybody. That's and who he shook he was. his hand, this yeah. tall man yes. uh, with, with uh, just such a presence. And I will remember sure. that uh, until my dying day. Okay, so lots of people saying, yeah, we've, uh, we've made him into something bigger than he was. Well, I'm biased. But I think that even compared to a Gandhi or a Churchill, to me, he is the human being of the 21st century. That's extraordinary because this is a yeah. guy that you spent five years very, very close to. Yes. So you would have seen his flaws. You would have yeah. seen uh, the, the ups and downs. And you still say that? Absolutely. And you know, Alec, because I, I, I'm asked that question quite often, and um, what I can say is that I watched him because of this position I was in. I watched him from an up-close and personal perspective change the country. But he also changed me very profoundly. Because when I came into that job, if you, if you pause the movie at 94 and roll it back to 1990, when I was actually actively serving in the church's section of the security branch at John Forster Square, when FW made that historic announcement, 
um, you know, there was probably a TV on in the tea room or something like that, and we weren't really paying attention. I mean, who listens to politicians, right, when you're a cop? And then ne the next thing he says, he is going to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally and unban all the banned political organizations. I mean, we know the import of that, of that statement. But when he signed it into law, we as the security branch had no more work because the illegal people and illegal organizations that we were focused on were now legal. So when this nine days later now, on the 11th of February, uh, President Mandela is released from Victor Fester. He goes to the Grand Parade in Cape Town to make his first speech as a free man and the world's media are there hanging off every word because we didn't even know what he looked like, remember? That's right. It was illegal to publish a photograph of him or anything that he said. So what is he going to say? He goes to the Grand Parade, he says a, a, you know, a lot of things, but one of the, the tenets of what he said was quoting from the Freedom Charter where he said, South Africa is for all her people, both black and white. And this cynical cop sitting in his office in John Forster is going, whatever. Of course you're going to say that. That's the party line. You know, we were instructed and trained in what the ideology of the, of the ANC was because that's warfare 101 is know your enemy's strategy or his philosophy. And I just poo-pooed all that. So that's 1990. So you thought that was PR? I just thought that was PR. Of course you're going to say that. It's the party line. Four years later, I get to meet him and not just meet him, I get to work with him and, and, and to serve in this particular capacity and all of a sudden I saw that none of that stuff that he was saying, like we need to build one South Africa, we need to unite her people, the, the country is for all of us. I very quickly, and I mean in a matter of months, realized that he's absolutely sincere about that because you expect that kind of thing to be a facade or at least it's propaganda and it's a, it's, it's a party line that he's you know trotting out. But he didn't, he lived it. And I bought into that philosophy of his hook, line, and sinker. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it now that I didn't believe a word he said in 1990. But coming to serve him in 94, it took a matter of two or three months for me to say, okay, at the very least, I'm prepared to give this man a chance. You can't fake because authenticity. You can't fake that. You can't put facade and, and Mandela in the same sentence. People often ask me what he was like. And the greatest compliment I think that I can pay and the easiest way to describe him is to say to you that how you perceive him, you've met him twice, if you've never met Mandela, how you perceive him off a 42-inch TV screen, that's exactly how he is. Because he had this very rare uh, quality of treating every person that he interacted with the same, whether he was speaking to another head of state or the gardener or his family or to us as his bodyguard, he treated everybody the same. And that is so rare not even mentioning how rare it is amongst politicians, but rare of any leader to be so utterly consistent in treating people exactly the same. Probably rare of any human being. Any human being, you're right. Mm. Yeah. Too many chameleons around who Too many for yeah. the circumstances. And they just, you know, they hunt with their hair and, uh, hairs and run with their hounds. But he's clearly influenced your life, given the way that your eyes Very opened. profoundly. Yeah. You still live in South Africa? Yes, I live in South Africa and I'm going nowhere. And I took a decision sometime during those five years that the things that I learned from him, and, and there were many, and we can, you know, we can talk about those when I get down to the Berg. But I've tried to, so I have three boys, and I've tried to teach 
that kind of um, those values that I learned from him to you know to to my sons, and I try and put them into practice every day. I I, I probably fail every day, but there's so much that we can learn from him. You know, just the just the the statement he made, um, and I paraphrase it, where he said, "It's so much better to sit down with your enemy and talk to him than to fight." I mean, that is a life lesson and as a value and as a principle, you know, can save this this world so much heartache, you know, so many human lives, so much death, so much conflict, just by listening to a simple, simple yet profound um, statement like that. At BNC two, so we have two conferences a year. That was at the spring conference in, in September. September. Yeah, Rob Hersov had a very strong speech. Uh, and yes. one of the tenets that he brought out, he said, if Madiba were alive today, he would vote DA. DA. Yeah. Do you think that he would? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if he would. He was such a party man that I think probably not. But the principles, what Hersov was saying, the principles that he would have voted for were not visible in his own party by then. So I think Hersov was on the money. If you look into the future and the way that South Africa is going today, and we know this isn't what Nelson Mandela would have wanted. No. Is it possible for us to recapture that Madiba magic? Alec, I'm an optimist, and I will, I will believe that till the day that I go to my grave. Because, And the, the only reason for that is that every single day we still see South Africans of, of every hue and color doing wonderful acts of kindness for and to one another. And I have to say that at some point that has got to, you know, it's like that cliche about the, you know, it only takes one flame flickering somewhere to, to push away darkness. And I think that there is more than enough of that kind of goodwill. And I don't say this looking through rose-colored spectacles, you know. I just see it every single day. And I think that once we get a grip on the kind of chaos and mayhem that we've had to endure for the last 10 or 11 years, evidenced by what happened in our, you know, in KZN and Gauteng in July last year. Once we get a grip on that, I think that we are going to be the country that everybody wants to invest in. And I'm not an, and I'm not an economist. However, we, we need a change at the top. Um, I'm not saying the, uh, the president. I have a lot of respect for our, for our president. But those, you know, those immediately below him I, I, I don't think are, are, are leaders that are going to take us there. Bobby Godsell, uh, in an interview that we had a little while ago, said that South Africa is blessed by its people but cursed by its leaders. Well, I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah. And if our leaders could just perhaps go back and, uh, and imagine they spent the five years that you did with yes. Madiba. But, I mean, so did, so did um, Cyril. You know, President Ramaphosa, at the time that I served Madiba, was the general secretary of the ANC, so he didn't have a you know a, a ministerial portfolio. He wasn't a, a a VIP in the terms of what I as a as a cop in the VIP protection unit understood a VIP to be. So he went through that 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 road, and, and let us never forget that it was he and Ruth Mayer that actually got us to where we are now as a democratic society. And I just I don't know. Um, whether it's this whole thing of you know fighting with one hand tied behind his back because he's got he's got such problems with from from within, but I believe if you look at these even my fellow South African speeches you know 
from the first one that he made up until this the, this very last one, I have respect for his abilities. So you would have seen a lot of Cyril as well yes. during those five years. Do you think he's for real? In other words, when he stands up and he says things that he intends doing, is he saying it again in an authentic manner or is he just towing a, a PR spin? I think that I think there's a bit of both. I like to believe that he is an, an, an authentic leader and a, and a good president. I think that he has to um, pacify or, or play towards certain factions, you know, in order to to keep his power base. And I'm not a politician, so I don't know even whether that statement is is accurate. I'm merely going on the evidence of my eyes. So what I see is a man who has the wherewithal is probably the right guy for the for the moment, but just severely hamstrung by those below him and also all of this 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 party infighting. I want to tell you one really cool story though, and this is an absolutely true story, Alec. You remember that there was a, a parliamentary determined deadline by which time the constitution had to have been ratified. And as we know, Cyril and Roof were the two that burned the midnight oil to to kind of get this document over the line. And uh, so let's say that it was the deadline expired on a Sunday night and on Monday morning in Parliament, Parliament had to ratify the, the South African constitution, not the interim one, the actual one, because this is about 96 I'm talking about. So now Madiba calls the whole shooting match to Mahlamandlovo, which is the official residence in Pretoria, his official residence, where he didn't stay, but every other president does. And there's this long dining room table, beautiful old wooden table, and he puts the ANC delegation down the one side, the Nats down the other side, and he says, right, now we're not leaving here until we've knocked this thing out because the deadline expires at midnight. So it's a Sunday afternoon. It's very boring for us because we've driven up the highway from Houghton where he lived and this negotiation is going on and you know we're just waiting for it all to end so we can take him back and go home to our families. So I'm sitting outside this dining room inside the official residence when the doors of the dining room fly open and out comes Cyril. So I get up and I didn't know him by any other term as chief because that's what my ANC colleagues called him because he was the the general secretary of the ANC. As I said, he didn't have a formal government position. So I got up and I said, Chief, can I help you? You know, is there something you need? He said, yes. Where's the nearest TV? I said, well, it's down the hall. Why do you need the nearest TV? He says, I just want to know who's leading the Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a true story. 